Welcome to Canoe Creek Christian Church's podcast. Our mission is to help others connect with Christ, grow together, and go share Jesus with their world. We are located at 4080 Pine Tree Drive. Our services are Sunday morning at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. You can also find our services online through Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening today. morning. How are you? It's good to see you. It's good to be here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe Harvey. My wife Valerie is here with me. We used to live here in St. Cloud and we're up in the Jacksonville area now. So this is home for us. It's so good to be back here and to see you guys again. Uh, I am speaking today on a profoundly significant topic, which is the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes that uh, Ross invites me to talk on topics that he thinks will be really fun to hear somebody else um, (laughs) teach on. So I'm delighted to be with you. But uh, I've got so much I want to share with you. So let's get right into it. How about it? Our text, main text today is going to be John chapter 14, verses 15 through 19. I'd like to read that for you. Now, bear in mind that Jesus is speaking to his 11 disciples. You say, well, there's 12, but not now. One of them is gone. So there's a reason why this text is going to, uh, there's, there's a reason why this text is written the way it is. Just follow with me. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live." In this passage, in the Gospel of John, we meet the Holy Spirit. Now, you, now it's true that we've, we've, we've met the Holy Spirit before. We, there, we know about the Holy Spirit moving in the Old Testament, things like this. But in this passage, we meet the Holy Spirit in a way that's different than any other time in Scripture. We are being introduced to something that is new. A change is about to happen. Jesus says, you understand to his disciples that God has given you power and he has achieved amazing things through you, through the Holy Spirit who has been with you. But now the time is coming when he will not just be with you, he will be in you. To kind of put this in perspective, let's imagine that the story of faith through the generations is a play with six acts. The first act is creation. This is the description of a God who creates a world, develops a world to be the way it should be. It is good by design. But then the second act is called the fall. It's the description of what happens in this good world when people choose to do bad. When evil is introduced into the world that God created, when people choose to behave in a way that's contrary to God's design and contrary to his own nature, which the Bible calls sin. 
In response to sin, the third act is the story of the nation of Israel. Through the giving of the law, through establishing the the sacrificial system, God through Israel is beginning to set right what has gone wrong with the world. And inside of that setting right is the story of the prophets and others of the promise of one day the chosen one of God would come and he would finally establish a right relationship with God. That leads us to the next act of the, act of the play, which is the story of Jesus. Jesus' three, three plus year public ministry is the fulfillment of the promises of God concerning the Old Testament hope of someone who would come and bring forgiveness and mercy and God's goodness and a new relationship with him. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have people who for the first time in history are Christians because it's not until Jesus dies and is risen again that you can put your faith in Jesus as your resurrected Lord and Savior. So we enter the current act of the play that we're in, which is the church. Now there's a sixth act of the play which describes what life will be like when we enter into a new heaven, a new earth, life beyond life. But I want to go back to this fifth act of the play, the the church. There's another way to think about this particular segment in the story of God's salvation. The fifth act of the play could be called the age of the Holy Spirit. In the passage that we've read, what we've discovered is the introduction of Jesus to his disciples of the coming of the age of the Holy Spirit. But before we explore the text further, let's go back and capture a few basic ideas of what the Bible teaches about this person, the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we'll note in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is actually a person, not a thing not a ooze, not a source. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to come under the influence of a person, just like there is God the Father, God the Son, there is God the Spirit. It's not to be, devo- not to be filled physically with something. We don't have a spiritual dipstick. It is a person in the Bible who, who is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament can be, he thinks, He wills, he can be grieved, he can be suppressed, you can refuse his influence, and he responds to you accordingly. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has the attributes of God. He is acknowledged, he is worshipped, he acts on God's behalf, and even Christians are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By the way, don't you find it curious that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit? Well, in the Old Testament, there is a spirit. There's a spirit of God, but he becomes the Holy Spirit as we enter into the New Testament because his fundamental role in the life of Christians is to help us grow in holiness, to mature in our relationship with God. In the New Testament, he's presented as the one who provides for people in the church gifts and abilities to help the church grow. 
in the New Testament, he's presented as the one that nurtures us from the inside out to become people of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which we call the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible has a lot to say about the role of the Spirit in the life of every believer. His presence is a fundamental promise. You see this in the very first Christian sermon. In Acts chapter 2, as you're reading, Peter presents the message that they, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, have seen and are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Not only that, he says to them, this Jesus who performed miracles that you saw, this Jesus who behaved in ways that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, which you've read and you know about, this Jesus God has raised from the dead. And he concludes his message in in chapter 2, verse 36, by saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That general promise of the presence of God's Spirit moving in our lives, which we'll explore a little bit more later, is so important to understanding what it means to live as a Christian, but it is not fundamentally what our key passage here is about. What you find in this key passage is that there is a sense in which what Jesus is going to say about the Spirit is unique to the 11. And there's another sense in which what he says about the Spirit is connected to all believers. In order to place this passage in its historical context, what we need to do is back up at least one chapter. It would be good to back up to the entire Gospel of John, but I don't think we have time for that. But we need to go back at least one chapter to understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying about the Holy Spirit to those 11 men on that night. The first thing to keep in mind is Jesus is speaking in this 14th chapter at the end of the night of the Lord's Supper, the final supper, the last supper. The key component here is to understand that this is just hours away from walking into the garden and praying and then being betrayed and then being arrested. It has come down to that moment when all the things that Jesus said about what would happen to the Son of Man, to the Son of God when he came to Jerusalem, it is all happening now. So what does Jesus do? He finds a secure location for the disciples to share together in this meal together. And he creates for them a familiar experience. It's kind of like that feeling that you have of of doing something that you've always done together. They share together in the Passover meal, which itself reminds them of how God saved a nation through the shedding of blood. And during this dinner together, in this private gathering that they have, Jesus then announces 
that he is going to be betrayed by someone in, in the room. It becomes important now that Jesus gets the betrayal of Judas out of the way so he can talk to the rest of the disciples about what happens next. So Judas leaves, and then Jesus, having washed the disciples' feet, establishes for them an example of how they should behave. Now, it sounds like, from what I just said, that those things happened in the, in the opposite order. They didn't. Jesus actually washed Judas's feet also. And this is a really interesting moment. And you have to appreciate this to understand, I think, what Jesus is going to say to the disciples. So they come to this private place. They're in this upper room. And it is the job of whoever is the least important in the group to clean the dirt of the road off the feet of the people who have come to eat. But Luke tells us on the way to the upper room, the disciples were arguing among themselves about who was greatest of Jesus' disciples. So they've gathered in the upper room in this familiar place, and instead of someone choosing to wash the feet of the others, they're all sitting there refusing to be the humble one. And Jesus gets up and he washes their feet and declares for them what greatness looks like. And even this is helping prepare them for what's about to happen. Jesus is about to die. And all the stories and all the beliefs of the people of, of Israel at the time of God would send this great Israelite king who would conquer the Romans and take charge and rule in Jerusalem, all that is disappearing before their very eyes. Jesus is showing them that a servant is the leadership style that God is pursuing. And then he explains to them that he's establishing a new covenant, a new relationship with God, and it will be put in place by the shedding of his blood. So here's the harsh reality the disciples are facing. For three years they walked with him, and man, were they confused. Have you read your Gospels? Jesus is constantly saying to them, are you still so dull? Are, 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 you, so, are you hard-headed, hard-hearted? Don't you get it? If you don't understand this parable, how, you, can you, how are you going to... Where is your faith? And he's not being cruel to them. He's calling them to the reality that the demands of honoring God and living in relationship with him are huge and the challenges are huge and they're feeling the weight of it and now the consolation prize that they had all along the way their consolation was no matter how confusing things were no matter how difficult they were no matter how many times they were challenged no matter how many times the religious leaders sent somebody to try and trip them up they always had Jesus he would always be there but now he's leaving and they are going to be alone. And their hearts are breaking. So it says they have dinner, they sing a song, and then Jesus begins to talk to them about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, 
becomes for the disciples the replacement for Jesus in their daily fellowship, in their life of service. Not that Jesus is not still present and involved in the life, but through the Spirit, God will lead them into their ministry, will lead them into their service, will lead them into their relationship. It is the promise, the Holy Spirit, of the continued presence of God to these broken-hearted disciples. He will be their companion, and he will do for them the kinds of things that Jesus did when he was physically with them. There's a comparison. Think about it this way. Um, Jesus is presented as the person in their lives that is the source of truth. He preaches, he teaches, he shows them by his life what God is like and what a God-honoring life is like. He is a source of power for them. He is strong and mighty to perform miracles. He can change, he, can, he understands, he can change circumstances and move even creation itself. He is their friend. He creates a sense of intimacy, a closeness, a connection. He is their source of encouragement and he is for them mysterious and amazing. And I've always thought this was just intriguing because we Christians, if you're a Christian, we Christians these days, we tend to think backwards to the way that the disciples think because we think of Jesus as divine and we try and figure out how he's human. The disciples knew he was human and they were trying to figure out how he was divine. They were trying to figure out how God comes into the world of man and dwells among us. He is, he, will, he tells them, the author of the new covenant, the new relationship, the means by which people will find forgiveness and new life and new hope in relationship to God. He is the means of atonement and he fulfills the Old Testament promises that God would do that very thing. But the Holy Spirit, which Jesus speaks of, he too will be a source of truth. He will inspire the writing of scripture. He will convict these disciples in the direction that they need to go. He will be the source of power. He will give gifts to them. He will be involved in their prayer life. He will providentially work in the growth and the changing and the development of the church. He will be a source of intimacy. He will not just be with them. He will be constantly present, exerting influence in their life. He will be in them. He will be the source of encouragement. He too will be mysterious and amazing. But he will be the means of sanctification. Sanctification is just a nice word for growing up and maturing as a believer. He will be the Holy Spirit, the one that raises them up and helps them to become holy. And he will be the one who facilitates the new covenant because the fifth act, the age of the church, is also the age of the Holy Spirit. Returning to our main text, we actually learned six things about the Holy Spirit and his relationship to the 11. <laughs> because Jesus is talking about what's going on with them right now. 
First, we learned that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God. It was God's intention all along that when Jesus was resurrected and ascended, went back to the Father, that the Holy Spirit would have a permanent presence that would guide and support and encourage the church. Jesus says he will be another advocate like me, Jesus says. As I helped you and as I was with you and as I encouraged you, the Holy Spirit will do the same thing. And he will always be with you. He has been with you in the past because Jesus gave them the ability to use the power of the Spirit to perform miracles and to preach and teach. But now he will be in you, Jesus says. He's unaccepted, misunderstood by the world, and he will be the source of truth. The final point here about the Holy Spirit as the source of truth is of special significance. He is the means, the Holy Spirit is the means by which the mission of the church will be carried out even to our day. He is the source of Scripture. In John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, Jesus talking to the, to the disciples, continuing his conversation with them, he says, All this I have spoken to you while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And by doing this, Jesus is saying, through the influence and the inspiration of the Spirit, you will be able to tell the story of Christ. You will be able to tell the story of Jesus. You will be able to write the Gospels because God's Spirit himself will make that possible. So you might ask, when did Jesus actually give this gift of this Spirit to these 11? In John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, this is such a Amazing passage, really. It says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sides. It's after the resurrection. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. There's a whole other sermon there. So this passage leads us to some experiences that are unique to the disciples themselves. Jesus is leaving. Their hearts are broken. Their world is falling apart. And Jesus assures them that God will give them a gift that will sustain them and support them and encourage them. The story of the age of the Holy Spirit is beginning as Jesus' public ministry closes. In the old story, in the Old Testament, there was a promise of something to come that was being realized during the days of Jesus' public ministry and the disciples that then transitions from the old relationship to the new relationship in the New Testament. 
early Christians will come to know this Holy Spirit as well. He is a person that will support, he will guide, he will enable, he will do so much more. Not only that, in the early church, he will become the fundamental source of power for the church. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says, on one occasion while they were eating with, while he, Jesus, was eating with them after the resurrection, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You say, wait a minute, Joe. You just told me that Jesus breathed on them and gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's right. There is a difference in the New Testament between the gifts of the Holy Spirit which he gives to people of faith in order to serve and make a difference in the life of the church and community, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit given to every believer in their life, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit or outpourings of the Holy Spirit to accomplish specific deeds and activities. They are waiting now for the day that the Holy Spirit will cause a miraculous event called the Day of Pentecost when they will be able to speak in languages that they haven't learned and it will fulfill the prophecies of Joel and everyone will be confronted with the truth that the new relationship with God has formally begun. There's so much that the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. And like God himself or Jesus, it is bigger and grander and sometimes more puzzling <laughs> than we can begin to imagine. I, I've been watching, have you guys seen the uh, new series called The Chosen? Uh, if you get a chance to see it, it's, it's really intriguing and you can watch it free online but it's a, a multi-part series on the life of Jesus. And in The Chosen, there is a scene where Jesus meets with Nicodemus, who is a scholar of the Old Testament faith. And he's a religious leader and teacher in, Jer in Jerusalem. And they're talking about being born of water and the Spirit. And when Nicodemus says, what does that mean? You know, what, what does that mean to be born again of the Spirit? And, and, John, and Jesus replies in John 3, 7 through 8, You shouldn't be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It is tempting for us, I think, to think of the Holy Spirit doctrinally. It is tempting for us to take the Bible and treat it as if it's a theological textbook. But it is not. It is the description of a personal God relating to us as persons and seeking to live in relationship with us. The Spirit may be difficult to understand in many ways, but it is a personal relationship that God is building within us through the gift of His Spirit, who sometimes reminds us of truths that we need to know, 
who provides us perspective for the inspiration of scripture that drives our life, who works in the circumstances, who fortifies us within our own spirit and encourages and supports us. We are living in the age of the Holy Spirit. And this is how Jesus is helping us to live in his presence. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and love, your goodness always. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to think and consider, to listen and hear, to revisit what you have to say to us about your love for us and the movement of your spirit in our world and in our life. We desperately need your guidance and support. We need to be encouraged. We need to be uplifted in our hearts and our spirits. We live in such challenging times that sometimes it just takes everything we've got to stay hopeful and courageous knowing that you are working in our life through your spirit to encourage us and support us, to equip us to serve and to be part of your family with joy. What a wonderful gift. Thank you for your love and kindness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.